There you go. That's all I have to say about announcements. Let, let's get on to the book of Paul's letter to the Galatians. You know, he spent uh, a while with, the, with the, the churches in Galatia. That's modern-day central Turkey, uh, western central Turkey. And um, so now he is writing a letter back to the churches that he um, planted, that he started. And he's got some important things to share. But let me, let me start with uh, a little bit of my story. We all have a story. I know that. And I've told this story in a number of places, so forgive me if this is old to you. If you've heard it many times, I'll listen to your story right after. You can tell me. So I, I was uh, raised in Huron, and my parents were just uh, really good about taking us to church at a small church in Huron um, every week. I mean, it felt like every week. Um, as, but I will say, as a, growing up, I, I never really understood, I never really, I, I'm sure they tried to teach me, but I never really understood the Bible, and I never really understood what it meant to have a relationship with God, what it meant to know God, and, and some of the things we talk about in this room, things we sing about in this room. And then around age 20, um, a good friend of mine shared with me the, what, the, what the, go, the gospel means, good news, what, what the good news of Jesus is, and that is that God has done for us through Jesus what we could never do for ourselves. He's made a way back to God. And he encouraged me to put my faith, my trust in Jesus, and that's what I did at age, at age 20. I was at college at the, at the time. And um, so I was excited about this new faith in Jesus, and there were all kinds of things that led up to that, and I'll skip over that. But I was excited about my new relationship with Jesus. So I, I made an appointment with the minister of the church that I was raised in. I was all excited to tell him that I had become a Christian. So we met in his office, and he called his office the Three C's Institute. And uh, I don't know why he called it that, but it was, his office literally was filled with books um, of, of different religions and philosophies from around the world. And as I shared with him my new faith in Jesus, I, I have to, I, I don't know, it was like a listless look, maybe a look of confusion or just maybe even a, a mild enthusiasm. And I never really figured that out. I walked out of there kind of confused myself, like, what was that? But then three years later, and this is where it gets interesting, uh, three years later, he went through a tragedy in his own life and he turned to God. Now, I know that sounds weird, a minister of a church turning to God, but he did. And that's, not an, that, that, that's a familiar story around the world. There are many ministers and churches who don't really understand the message of the gospel, the message of the Bible. And um, so our, our, he turned to God and put his own faith in Jesus. And his life was radically changed, transformed as a result. And our next meeting was very different from the first meeting. And what he said to me were these words uh, in, in so many words. He, this is what he said. I'm going to read this. This is hard to admit, Jay, but for 17 years in front of the congregation, I never once talked about the cross of Christ. Isn't that interesting? How do you talk about Jesus without talking about the cross? But a lot of churches do that. And um, so no wonder in our church, I and so many others never really fully understand, except for Jesus' good teachings, why did Jesus come and how do you have a relationship with God? How can you be forgiven of your sin? And all of us were left thinking, well, if I just do enough good things in the world, then maybe that will outweigh the bad and maybe that will get me to God and to heaven. That's pretty much the thought. Now, if you take, if you remove the cross from Christianity, 
If you sort of disembowel Christianity, take out the cross, then, then you are not, no longer left with true Christianity. True Christianity is, revolves around the, the cross of Christ. And when we put our faith in Jesus, now we have a way to God. And now we have a way to be changed by God. And that's pretty much where we've been in chapter 2 of the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians. Um, let me just refer back to last week. Uh, that was, I think, our third lesson in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Maybe you were here. And do you remember? It was a very awkward, uncomfortable, tension-filled dinner conversation Paul, the Apostle Paul, was having with Peter and these guys called Judaizers. The Judaizers were people of Jewish faith, Jewish heritage. They put their faith in Jesus, but they were trying to tell the Gentiles, the non-Jews, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you also need to obey the Mosaic law to be made right with God. And Paul is having a conniption fit because he's never taught that, and that's not right. What Paul says to Peter and these Judaizers, guys, there are 613 laws in the Mosaic Law. You and me and none of our ancestors, none of us have ever been able to keep all of those laws. We all fall short. So why in the world would, would you want to put that burden on these non-Jews, telling them they need to keep the, the law of Moses when they could never do it themselves? And Paul essentially says this in the first couple chapters. The, the, the law, the Mosaic law, was never intended to save us. It was intended to point us to our need for a Savior. And that Savior has come to us from God through the person of Jesus. And if you put your faith in Jesus alone, you will be made right with God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. When the angel said to the shepherds, you know, uh, behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. What's it? What was it? He was referring to Jesus. And then when we put our faith in Jesus, that's it. Jesus is enough. Now that brings us through chapter two. Now we come to chapter three, right? So to this point, it's just been when you put your faith in Jesus, you're made right with God. Chapter three, well, that's on how we get changed by God. I vividly remember driving back to college thinking something like this. Am I going to make it? Not to college, but am I going to make it as a, as a Christian? Is this new Christian faith of mine going to stick? Am I going to experience the change that I long for, that I think I signed up for, to be transformed, and ultimately I realized to be turned more and more into the image of Christ? to be a more loving, caring, kind person, the, the person I want to be? Is that really going to happen to me? And then I wonder about you. You probably have had similar thoughts. You know, here you are in church, and if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you wonder, where does real change happen? How can real change happen? How can I be transformed? How can I be the person I know I want to be? How can I be more like Jesus? How can I be more caring and kind and loving and courageous and all of that? And I'm sure when Paul was in Galatia with the Galatians, he had similar conversations. But now as he writes this letter to the Galatians, he's like scratching his head thinking, have you forgotten, you Galatians, what we talked about when I was with you, how real change happens? Either you've forgotten, or worse, you've been deceived. 
And this is how chapter 3, verse 1 begins. Oh, foolish Galatians. I mean, literally, it's, it's you stupid Galatians. I'm not kidding you. Who has cast an evil spell on you? Who has cast an evil eye on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Galatians, I, I explained it to you as if you were there, as if you saw Jesus die on the cross. I made it super clear to you. And yet you are acting so foolish. Now, as we go from chapter 2 into chapter 3, Paul, in a sense, is wanting to, the Galatians to understand, wanting you and me to understand, when you put your faith in Jesus, there is like a double blessing that happens. Let me explain that to you. What he has said in chapter 2 is, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are made right with God. There's no rule-keeping you need to add to it, nothing else. You are made right with God. And now as he gets into chapter 3, already alluded to in chapter 2, he says the second blessing is this, that God, when you place your faith in Jesus, God joins his life with yours by giving you the Spirit of Christ, the, the Holy Spirit who comes to live within and up to this point, Paul has not mentioned the Holy Spirit, but now he gets to it. He says, let me ask you this one question as we're talking about how a life has changed. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed in the message you heard about Christ. You received the Spirit, not because of the rules you kept, but because you put your faith in Jesus. Again, a double blessing. You believe in the gospel in Jesus, you are made right with God. You believe in the gospel in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. It happens at the same time. It's simultaneous. When I, when I uh, first became a Christian, and maybe you did this too, I, I was encouraged um, by some people to memorize some Bible verses. And one of the first Bible verses I ever memorized uh, was uh, in Galatians chapter 2. We just looked at it last week. Let me see if I can do it for you. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And it is no longer I who live, but, but, but Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. I probably butchered that in somewhere, somewhere but you get the idea. So I have been crucified with Christ all of my former efforts to get to God, um, my sin, my, my selfishness, my pride, all of it has been crucified with Christ. My sins are forgiven. I've been crucified. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What he's saying is the Holy Spirit lives within any true believer. He doesn't mention Holy Spirit there, but he's getting to it in chapter 3 as we just read. So, now, up till chapter 3, he's not mentioned Holy Spirit per se, but in chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, he will. So we need to understand the Holy Spirit. Let me just do a little sidebar lesson on the Holy Spirit. Since it's kind of confusing, uh, Francis Chan once wrote a book called The Forgotten God. It's the third person of the Trinity. He's hard to understand because he's unseen, but as a believer in Christ, he lives within you, so it's good to understand. And, and a, you, as a, as a Christ follower, you did not receive the Holy Spirit because uh, you were keeping the rules, because you were a good person, because of church attendance, uh, because you attended a class taken at 
church. The Holy Spirit comes to anyone who believes in Jesus, and that's period. And when the Holy Spirit comes to live within, his desire is to go to work, (laughs) is to go to work and to shape within you the person of Christ, to help you to be the kinder, more loving, more gentle, more Christ-like person that we want to be. And Paul, you can tell as he's writing this letter, it's like he thought the Galatians understood all of that, but apparently they did not. He's stumped by their behavior. And so he writes some interesting questions, some hard questions. How foolish can you be, Galatians, after starting your new lives in the Spirit, Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. It's because of your belief. Now, Paul says, how foolish. Again, how stupid. But, I can't be too critical of the Galatians, and neither can you, because at times I find myself, and maybe you do as well, thinking things like, thank you, Lord, for saving me from my selfishness, my pride, my sin, for making me right with God. However, I got it from here. I got it from here. I can handle this life. I will navigate my life on my own my own way, my own timing, on my own terms. I appreciate the gift of salvation, but your services are no longer required, at least not in this circumstance, at least not until I call on you again. I'll do it my way. Thank you very much. And Paul tells the Galatians, and he tells us how foolish to think like that. Foolish because though we are forgiven of our sin, we are still sinners. And our sin knows its way around in our lives. Some of us have lived for a lot of years, and we know that, right? Maybe when you were a kid or maybe recently on a school playground or in a park, have you ever played tetherball? I think about this from time to time. Tetherball is where you hit the ball and somebody else hits and you try to wrap it around the pole and eventually it gets wrapped around the pole. That's sort of the way it is in our lives leading up to trusting Christ. We kind of wrap our lives with different sin. You name what that is in your own life. And then once we trust in Christ, it takes a long time to unravel that pull. Paul is essentially saying to the Galatians, and he says to us, there is no way we can keep enough rules or muscle our way free from the entanglements and the wrappings of sin. To be released from the power of sin, experiencing Christ-like change, really true transformation, comes from an ongoing belief in Jesus and a surrendered heart. That releases the power of the Spirit to change our lives. That's just sort of summarizing generally what Paul is saying. The real life change can happen but it's going to be our yielding to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Now, Paul thinks that maybe he's losing his audience here. (laughs) And so he brings in an illustration. He brings in the central figure, the key figure in the entire Jewish scriptures, and that is the person of Abraham. And this is what he writes. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous, because of his faith. 
Um, maybe you know the story of Abraham. And God had made a promise to Abraham that from him would come a great nation. And from that nation would come a blessing for the whole world. Now, that's eventually the person of Jesus. But if you know Abraham's story, that was a crazy promise. This is a quote from Genesis 15:6. That was a crazy promise. Abraham was very, very old. His wife was just a little bit younger. And they uh, were way beyond childbearing years. So what a promise. And yet it says that Abraham believed God. As a result of believing God, this is what we read in Scripture, this is what Paul tells us, that God counted Abraham as righteous. That's, remember I talked about a double blessing? Well, Abraham here is made right with God simply through his faith. Think of a, think of a ledger, like an accountant's ledger. You have the debit column, the credit column. I, I did terrible in accounting, so I, maybe I got this all wrong. But you have the debit side of sin, which now is wiped out. And Abraham, because he believes God, he's credited with righteousness. He's declared as righteous by God. He is made right with God simply because he believes God. More than believing in God, he believes God. But a second thing happens. His broken body was given the ability to reproduce. Um, Maybe you remember this story, but Sarah laughed when she heard the story that they would have kids. It was, beyond, it was beyond what they could comprehend. They had totally given up on the possibility of having children. Um, it was just not to be, and yet God promised that it would happen. And so Abraham believed God. And after many years of waiting, believing God, Abraham and Sarah had a son, and that son would father a nation who in turn would give us a savior, a savior for the whole world. The, the point that I think that Paul is trying to get at is that this was all God. This was all God who made this happen. Again, double blessing. Abraham believed God, he was made right with God. Abraham believed God, and God did the impossible. And I just want to ask you, in your, in your own life, what's the impossible thing that you would hope for? I don't know. I mean, I mean first of all, we, as, as we believe in Jesus, we are made right with God. But, but that change that you hope for in your own life, that, that true transformation you hope for in your own life, the way you want to be more like Jesus, do, do you see that happening in your own life? Let me just throw up some categories for you. We, we think about our, our marriages. What would you like to see happen there? What is something that only God could make happen? The, the marriage conference will be really good, but what could God do? In your singleness, or maybe overcoming temptation, what, whatever that might be. Maybe it's to be drawn closer to God. Maybe it's to be a witness at work. Maybe it's to be just a good friend at school. Perhaps it's trusting when things are uncertain, the unknown. Celebrating when things go well, that's hard for some people. Just finding joy in the difficulty of life, that's hard. 
to rest. Somebody came up to me after the last service and said, I'm, I'm so glad you put rest up there because I find it so hard to rest, to wake up in the morning or just to take your very next breath. So, so like, like Abraham, there is no way we can accomplish what we want to see happen in our own lives by our own strength. Paul says we need God. True spiritual transformation, true change from the, from the inside out, it is something God can do, but it is a process. It's a long process. Sometimes it's a painstaking process, the, the sins and the habits and the hang-ups that we have in our own lives. But God, is in the, he's in the business of changing lives. He takes you right the way you are, but doesn't want to leave you the way you are. I've been a Christian for over 45 years, and more than that, actually. I'm just cheating on age, but I, I've, been a Christian for a long, I've been a Christian for a long time. And, and at times, I'm just so disappointed that I'm not better. I still struggle, and I still sin, and I still fail, and I still fall, and I bet you do also. But here's the question. What do you do when you fail and fall as a Christian? I love the book of Proverbs. It's the book of wisdom, and I'm going to show you one great piece of wisdom a righteous man falls seven times. It's not just, that's just a number. Don't take that literally. A righteous man will just continue to fall, but then it goes on to say, but gets back up. I want to ask you, why would you want to get back up? When you fall, why would you want to get back up and keep believing God? Keep Believing Jesus. Keep surrendering your life to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. Why would you ever want to do that? I read this recently from Tim Keller, and uh, I'm going to read this to you. This is impetus. This is a reason for getting back up. Here we go. Listen to this. Imagine that your house was burning down, but your whole family had escaped, and I said to you, let me show you how much I love you, and ran into the house and died. What a tragic and pointless waste of life, you would probably think. But now imagine that your house was on fire, and one of your children was still in there, and I said to you, let me show you how much I love you, ran into the flames and saved your child, but perished myself. You would think, look how much that man loved me. And Keller goes on to say, if you, think, if you think you could save yourself, then Christ's death is meaningless. It's pointless. But if you believe you could never save yourself, then all of a sudden, it means everything. And you will spend your life, yeah, failing and falling, but you will spend your life getting back up looking for ways to honor him, to serve him. Back to the cross. I've shared this before. In England, there's a story of a church there, a country church, and over the, the entryway 
it simply reads, we preach Christ crucified. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul in one of his letters. We preach Christ crucified, nothing else. But over the years, the ivy began to grow. And it covered the word crucified. Now, we preach Christ. And they did. They preached really good stories about Jesus. But there was no cross. It reminds me of the church I grew up in. And then eventually it just said, we preach. Leaving Christ out of it. If you leave Christ crucified, the cross of Christ, out of Christianity, you have ruined it. But when we keep the cross of Christ there, we remember this. I cannot earn my way to God. I cannot make my way into God's favor. I cannot be enough of a rule keeper. In fact, all the rules in life simply point me to my need for a Savior. And I turn to Jesus, who said on the cross, it is finished. What was finished? His suffering, yes. His time on earth, yes. But what was finished was his mission. And that was to come and die for us so that we would never have to work our way to God. God has given us everything we need to be made right with God and to be changed by God. Let's pray together, please.